And it's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery, and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. One of the things that I talk about a lot uh, amongst other wine writers, folks interested in wine and winemakers, is the idea of sustainability. It's a, it's a hot topic uh, in not just wine, but really uh, globally in almost every aspect of, of what we do make, produce, and consume. But what does sustainability really mean in the wine industry when you get down to it, the nitty-gritty? Um, I want the details. So I'm really excited to have as a guest Carl Wente. He's the fifth-generation wine grower and senior vice president of winemaking at Wente Vineyards. And Carl, thanks for being on the show. I guess my first question is, um, also, when I think of sustainability, I think of what's going on in the vineyards. But what's going on inside the winery? What are practices that you do that are that promote sustainability? I mean, great question, and thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very proud of my family's legacy, five generations, 131 years of doing what we're doing and growing grapes and making wine here in the Livermore Valley. And in the winery, sustainability is just really about how you manage the resources, how you manage the people, and then ultimately how you manage the bottom line as well, because the bottom line allows you to continue to spend money to do the things that are really helping the environment and helping the people overall. So, you know, first and foremost is water, and water is high on everybody's list, but just in terms of how we use water and recycle water, we recycle 100% of our winery process water that you use for washing tanks and various things, and that goes through a two-stage uh, pond system that cleans it up and allows us to put it back into the vineyard, thus saving all of that resource. Simple things like recycling, which is, you know, sort of commonplace these days, but 100% of the plastic, the cardboard, the glass, the foil, the capsules, uh, electronics, I mean, everything that you do. Um, skylights in the winery. What an incredibly simple one, but, you know, sometimes you just, people don't do that, but use Mother Nature's lighting instead of paying your PG&E bill. Another one is motion sensor lighting throughout the winery. So the lights turn on and off where people are working. How you cold stabilize your wine or avoid cold stabilizing your wine if it doesn't need it. And so it's really, to me, it's just good decision making and being good stewards of the resources. You know, what products you use to clean the tanks because that's going to go through into your water. So you want something that will that is a good, you know, that is is benevolent to the environment but does the job through and through. So it's just good decision-making across everything you do is really how I look at sustainability. And one of the things you talked about, uh, the practice of cold stabilization, uh, what, what does that mean? What does that do for your wine? What is that a white wine thing or a red wine, red wine thing? How does that work? I mean, it's for both red wines and white wines, but basically, you know, the crystals that will sometimes show up on a cork, or show up in the bottle where you get that sediment that comes in. And so one of the things, that, one of the ways to do it is to chill down your wine to force the crystals out before you go into the bottle. And then so now it's just doing it only, you know, chilling that wine down only if it's really needed for that crystal, and then also engaging the consumers to know that a little bit of that is okay. I mean, it's just a natural product associated with wine, so... The less you can do of chilling down that wine, the lower your PG&E bill, the lower your overall energy consumption. So it's really just working to manage and reduce as much energy consumption as possible. 
And one of the things you mentioned going on inside the winery, and that's also people are thinking about outside the winery, especially in California, is water. I guess the first thing I want to mention is that, you know, when people, uh, if you go into a winery, such a big part of what's going on in a winery is is cleaning. And there's so much cleaning there. I guess people probably think it's a real uh, glamorous job and it has its perks, certainly. But there is definitely a lot of cleaning and a lot of water. But I want to talk about water in the vineyards. Um there's so much in the news about drought in California that I'm wondering if you could tell me about uh, how are things in the Livermore Valley drought-wise, and what do you do to uh, conserve water in the vineyards, especially at a time when there's so much drought and it would seem like you would need uh, additional water to maintain the health of the vineyards and the grapes? Yeah, I mean, so with the, with the water in the vines, it's really looking at your vines and being able to monitor them and the soil as well as possible. So various things we do that help us look at and mitigate and manage our water use is we have sap flow sensors on certain grapevines. And then so these sap flow sensors tell us how much water the vine itself is using. We also have soil moisture probes in the ground that show us the water, you know, the soil water level. We do pre-dawn leaf water potential, so it shows the water potential of that of a leaf out in the grape or out in the vineyard. And so we're and then we also take aerial images once a week. So we have someone flying over our vineyards once a week to show us sort of how it's growing and, and how the grapevines are doing. So we can really work to only irrigate when they when the grapevines need it and they're actually using it. And so it's really that all of those have been really effective tools for us to continue to use less and less water just to optimize what's needed. And so in Livermore Valley, we have access to the surface water, the, the canal water that the Army Corps of Engineers built after World War II. So while we do have our water allocations and our water rights, we recognize that you need to be continually proactive to be out in front to really only use the water that's needed in order to optimally grow the grapevines. And another thing is, you know, in the in the vineyards, you shoot, you first you prune, and then the grapevines grow, and then you shoot thin, so you remove the shoots that you don't want. And you do that as early as humanly possible because by removing that tissue, you're giving less leaves on the vine, thus the vine itself is using more water. And the same goes with dropping clusters. And you always, in vineyards, you always drop clusters. On high-quality vineyards, you always drop clusters in order to balance and, and regulate and make sure you have the optimal level of fruit on the vine such that uh, you're, you're, you know, growing the best grapes that you can for the wine that you're making. And so we do that as early as possible as well. So all of those things reduce the demand, the water demand of the grapevine itself. So it's a really a multifaceted approach to look at how to optimally use the precious resource that we have of the water. Yeah, and do you anticipate, I mean, you, you do all these things to uh, regulate your water usage and make sure your your vines are healthy and getting what they need, but with the, with the weather this year, do you anticipate the 2014 harvest being a uh, challenging or difficult in any way or that the, the resulting wines might be uh, atypical or do you think based on what you do that uh, things are looking you know fairly typical for, for 2014? For 2014, things are looking pretty typical. You know, it's been a it's been a reasonably normal year overall. And so, you know, that being said, if you ask me in November, I'll know exactly how the harvest went. And right now, we're just sort of gearing up as the sugars are rising. All the vineyards look really healthy. We have 
been saving water of what we've used last year. So, you know, all, all indications are positive. I'm looking forward to a great uh, quality vintage. Fantastic. And then I want to talk about some of the specific uh, sustainable practices you use in the, the vineyards that people may read about but not quite know what they do. And one of the things you do is you use cover crops, which I guess are planted in between uh, each row of vines. What kind of crops do you plant and what is their, what is their purpose? So the cover crops can serve three different purposes. One is erosion control. If you have hillside vineyards, you want to make sure you have a crop in place so the soil doesn't run down the hill. And then on flatlands and, or I mean, on all, all spots, you'll do it, you'll put it in, you'll put in crops or uh, species in that cover crop that will host beneficial insects to help host a healthy ecosystem for the soil. And you'll also put in crops, some of them can fix nitrogen like vetch and mustard. So then when you mow that in and, and it works its way into the soil, you're increasing your organic matter and the nitrogen level in your soil. So it's really those three facets. And in places where the soil is in balance, we just tend to use native grasses, you know, like barleys and rye and, and the, the native grasses that are on the Golden Hills of California. And maybe you can uh, use those and make some beer, too, as well. I'm sure you could, but I got my hands full making wine. <laughs> you do, you do. And then what about um, compost? I know you use compost. Is that something that you, do you make your own compost? Let's say, do you use, I know you've got a, a pretty extensive vegetable and, and garden for the, the winery restaurant too. Is that something you make yourself? And then how does how does compost add to the, the health of the vineyard? Yeah, absolutely. So we have the three main fertilizers and soil amendments that we use. One is compost. And one is fish-based, and so it's actually you take the waste streams from local fisheries and then you can break that down and then put a fish oil directly in the soil. And then so that oily fish emulsion just really helps to, you know, nurture the soil and nurture and make it a living, healthy soil. And then lastly is seaweed-based. And then so there are three 100% organic products that we use, but I'm not chasing an organic certification. I'm just chasing sustainability and good decisions and healthy soils, and healthy soils lead to healthy grapevines. Healthy grapevines lead to healthy fruit flavors and, you know, the foundation of the wines. So, but back to composting, we do still have a compost program in play here for our organic herb and vegetable garden at the restaurant, and we used to compost all of our grape material ourselves but now we're actually taking our great material, the skins and the seeds after fermentation or after pressing, and we're sending those off to biofuels instead, and then we're purchasing, we're purchasing outside compost instead of doing it ourselves. But we still very much, you know, you take the waste stream off of the, off of the winemaking process, which are skins and seeds of grapevines, which are very nutrient-rich and great, and we used to incorporate them back into our soil, but instead we're going to biofuels with it, which is another good way to utilize that resource, but then we still come back and purchase compost and put it on the ground because you, it's a beautiful way to use a waste stream from somewhere else and incorporate that into your soils. And Carl, you said you're not chasing um, organic certification, but certainly a lot of these practices that you're describing uh, would, you know, sound like organic practices. Um, what is it? What is the certification process like? Is it something you've looked into? Is it just onerous time-wise, financially? And um, what, what are your feelings on becoming certified organic? My feeling is just 
is sustainability is a better way to go. And sustainability, you know, I, I sort of live by the mantra that good artists borrow and great artists steal. And then so I just want to steal all of the best ideas from, from everybody, whether it's biodynamic, whether it's organic, whether it's sustainable, whether it's conventional, but just like what are good ideas for being the best steward of the land, the best steward of the resources, the best steward of the water, the best steward of electricity, the best stewards of the people. So, yeah, there's a certain amount of acres that we could have certified organic if we went through the two- or three-year paperwork process of getting it all lined up, and you know, but it's just not something we're looking for. I just want to continue to be sustainable, continue to have good, healthy vineyards with good, healthy grapevines, good, healthy soils all the way through. Yeah, and you mentioned biodynamics, which is something that um, I've always been interested in. Um, I've written about it on my website at jamesonfink.com and uh, interviewed an author, Catherine Cole, who wrote a book called Voodoo Vintners about it in Oregon. But um, one of the things I, I've read people do where they talk about like what you're doing, they take the best things from it. And I guess biodynamics is sort of like an uber-organic system that's a little bit mystical, sometimes based on the phases of the moon and uh, certain, using certain teas that you prepare. But um, what are some of the practices of biodynamics that you have, uh, like you said, that you've, you know, stolen or borrowed or appropriated that you think really resonate and, and help make your your wine and your work better? Um, I think it's just, you know, because you're right that biodynamic really just follows. There's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between biodynamic and your astrology reading every day in the newspaper and, you know, the following the phases of the moon for when it's the best time to irrigate and to water and, you know, different times like that. And then using different, like, the compost tea mixtures that you'll put into the vine or you'll put into the ground at various times to ultimately just work towards that healthy soil. So I don't use a huge amount of biodynamic principles overall, but I do follow it because you, you just keep your eye on it because if you're given the opportunity to irrigate at a, when the – when the phase of the moon is such that the biodynamic calendar says that's the most optimal time to do so, it's just sort of like, why would you not, you know, just right. to take advantage of these, uh, these practices and principles out there. And then, you know, using the compost and having the healthy organic soil. I'm not out in the vineyards burying horns with manure in them, but I'm also not someone that, that scoffs at it. Like, I just want to, I want to take all of the, all of the best ideas out there and put them forward to have the best healthy soil, best healthy grapevines we can. And talking about grapevines, I was reading and the grapes that grow on them that you work with, I think it was 33 grape varieties. And I'm just wondering, um, and so also I want to touch on the that you also have a kind of a small lot, a separate small lot facility for making, uh, well, literally smaller lots of wine. But I'm wondering, um, are you always kind of experimenting with new grapes, new blends? Are there things that you're finding exciting or that you want to bring to the Livermore Valley or maybe another vineyard area that you're working with? Are you always kind of curious about what, you know, trying new grapes or, or you just, you got your hands full there with 33? I mean, 33, it's fine. I'm not like hungry for anything else. You know, honestly, I'd love to, I'd love to have a little bit of Chenin Blanc because I think there's some really cool Chenin Blancs being made, but it'd only be for a small lot little thing. Overall, I have the right mix of what I'm looking for. There's some days where I think 33 is too many, but having all of these different grapevines is such a powerful tool when it comes to blending the finished products that we have. And But, you know, I'm not really out there thinking what else did we have. I'm just thinking how do we best grow the 33 that we have, best make the wine, and best blend the wines with what we got.
Now, you do have a, a separate, a, a small lot facility. And when did you uh, decide to have that uh, put in? And how is it how is it beneficial for you? You know, you've got the main winery and then you've got this small lot one. What does that allow you to do? A small lot winery really enables for um, making the best wine in the world. You know, we have world-class tanks, pumps, receivable, you know, everything that you would want to do to, to make the best wine in the world. And also, it just allows you to learn every vintage. And what's critical for me and my team, my viticulture team and my winemaking team, is that we have this constant strive and drive towards improvement. And in order to improve, you gotta you got to learn and you got to know what you want to do. And it starts with how you farm, when you prune, when you shoot them, when you irrigate, when you tip, when you top, and then when you pick. So we might take a vineyard and pick it at you know, 24% sugar, 25% sugar, 26% sugar, and make that wine in the small lot winery and keep it separate and then taste it and really learn and then take what we've learned and fan it out across the, the rest of the winery. Also, what yeast you use, what's your fermentation temperature, what's your punch-down or pump-over regime, how do you handle malolactic fermentation, how do you handle blending, what works well with other stuff. And so it really becomes a fun little experimental playground and then it's also where we make our nth degree wines and our small lot wines, where we've got about 30 wines that are tasting room only that never leave the Livermore Valley, where we do a Grenache Syrah Mouvedre, a Syrah Cunoise blend, a Tariga Nationale Tempranillo, Tariga Francesca Suzal blend, or a Syrah Cabernet, or a Classic Meritage, or a Semillon Chardonnay. I mean, all of these different things create a really fun playground that we do in the small lot winery. Carl, I, I noted that you spent some time working in Australia at a winery in Victoria. Can you tell me about that experience and, and if you learned things there that you're, you're applying to what you're doing in the Livermore Valley today? Yeah, absolutely. I, before, uh, before I came back to work at the family business, I worked two vintages, one at Peter Michael Winery in the Knights Valley and then one in Australia in Victoria at Brown Brothers. And both of those just gave me experience with the winemaking process, and they ultimately just reinforced what I learned in school, which is, you know, this profound statement that it starts in the vineyards, manage your vineyards well, source your fruit well, farm well, and then manage your fermentation and manage the temperature of your fermentation to get the optimal extraction that you're looking for. And then so, and it just really reinforced that just winemaking is a very old craft, and there's not a lot of secrets to winemaking. And execution is the cherry of the genius. You got to get in, do the right things at the right time, and get the job done. Yeah, that's interesting. That um, you know, there's just some basic tenets of winemaking that you, you no matter where you are, that you need to apply and be cognizant of. Um, I also thought it was interesting too to note that. Um, when you're not uh, making wine, you play a little guitar too. I was wondering if you could talk about. I always there are a lot of winemakers I know who are really into music. I'm wondering, um, do you play a lot of music when you're working in the winery, and what kind of things are you listening to? Yeah, great question. I mean, I love playing my guitar, and I try and touch it every day. And you know, playing playing in a band, playing gigs, and having fun doing that. And certainly in the winery, there's music going full time. And when we're blending wine, I always have music going and on my hard drive of music, I could push play and it wouldn't repeat a song for 263 days. Wow. So I just, so there's just an incredible volume of type and style 
And yesterday I walked in and people were blending and Mozart was playing. And the day before that, Little Feet was playing. The day before that, Led Zeppelin and Stevie Wonder. The day before that, Mumford and Sons. So, you know, it just really depends. But I think it's the, the beauty of the combination of music and wine. It was a really fun thing. And I embrace the different styles of wine. And, you know, sometimes when we're blending wines and we, do, we get to a point where it's not really moving we can't make the decision i'll always laugh and i say well we got to change the music and see what happens and it's really funny how it does work to sort of reset the mood and reset the vibe and then also lining up the type and style of music that's being played with the type and style of wine that's being blended it's another fun little facet of it yeah like would would uh would like led zeppelin or metallica work with pinot noir or would that just be uh that would that be just wrong I feel like you'd wanna you'd wanna go something a little bit more mellow with a Pinot Noir coming through. It's not to say it would be wrong, but I would say those two are a little bit more Cabernet Petit Syrah type of things. Uh huh. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and then uh, I've also read about winemakers um, playing music in their barrel room and uh, in the vineyards, and that there are I don't know if they're anecdotal studies or are backed with science that they they definitely feel that it's a, a beneficial to the wine in barrel and and also the vines. Is that something you've ever considered, or is that outlandish even to you? Uh, no, you know it's still like there's vibratory patterns associated with everything and how things move and shake, so to speak. That being said, you know, I, I turn up the music in my car when I step out of the vine, when I step into the vine rows and walk vineyards, so that one pervades through. And to me, it's really more about the human factor associated with it. Uh, if the people are happy and good spirits, the better execution across making wine happens. So, you know, I'm not sure that the wine in the barrel is going to really be able to tell the difference between Houses of the Holy and Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. That's good that you mentioned people because I kind of wanted to to finish on that note. How do people fit in our notion of sustainability? People are a critical, critical facet across it because it's the people that get it done, that execute, that do the recycling, that conserve the water, that turn off the lights, that make all of the decisions. And ultimately, one of the things that I'm most proud of is our family gave away etched three-liter bottles of wine to employees that have been with the family for more than 25 years. And we gave away 33. That's 33 people that have been with us for 25 years or longer. I have four people in the vineyard that have been with us for 40 years or longer. Right? So it's this incredible wealth of experience and the sustainability of having those people there so, so they're helping you make the decisions, take care of the land, take care of the resources, take care of the water, take care of the electricity, everything. So people are a huge component of it, and I couldn't be more proud of the legacy that my family has for really being good to people. Absolutely. Well, Carl, thanks for being on the show. I think it's great to talk about sustainability and realize that, you know what, it's about what goes on inside the winery, what goes on outside of the winery and the vineyards, and also with the people doing the work. So I think you've put a real uh, a real point on what exactly it means to be sustainable uh, in a real holistic perspective. So thank you for being on the show today, Carl. Thank you so much for having me.